Our first reading this morning is titled, Swimming, One Day in August, by Mary Oliver. It is time now, I said, for the deepening and quieting of the spirit. Among the flux of happenings, something had pestered me so much, I thought my heart would break. I mean, the mechanical part. I went down in the afternoon to the sea, which held me until I grew easy. About tomorrow, who knows anything, except that it will be time again for the deepening and the quieting of the Spirit. The second reading is, assuming we can get through it, the second reading is from Swinging on the Garden Gate, a spiritual memoir by Elizabeth J. Andrew, who is a local writer and teacher. Elizabeth writes about growing up in New York State on the Hudson River shore. She writes, In my family, faith was a strong undercurrent not unlike the Hudson at the edge of our backyard. All summer long, my sister Marcy and I swam in that dirty river. Marcy dog-paddled, her short black hair plastered to her face. I swam laps around the two rafts, backstroke and crawl. If on a sunny day we dove deep and opened our eyes underwater, we each independently discovered how every refracted beam of light converged on us. When I was young, I wanted more than anything to be in relationship with the mystery. I wanted to dive under the ropes, heavy with seaweed. The river was unfathomable. Ducking under the surface, I dug my toes in the murky bottom and suspended my weightless body in the olive underworld for as long as I could hold my breath. From the river, I learned my north and south. The river was my wide margin, my breathing space. On the page, the left-hand line against which my childhood was written. It was my first conscious image of God, sprung completely from my own experience and not from a Sunday school book. If God was like the river, then I was in dynamic relationship with God. We touched one another, we moved one another, and something was born of that contact. My blood was really river water, and in me was that drive to reach the sea. This summer I went swimming, this summer I might have drowned, but I held my breath and I kicked my feet and I moved my arms around, I moved my arms around. This summer I swam in the ocean and I swam in a swimming pool, salt my wounds, chlorine my eyes, I'm a self-destructive fool, I'm a self-destructive fool. This summer I did the backstroke 
And you know that that's not all. I did the breaststroke and the butterfly and the old Australian crawl. The old Australian crawl. This summer I swam in a public place in a reservoir to boot. At the latter I was informal. At the former I wore my suit. I wore my swimming suit. This summer I did swan dives and jackknives for you all. And once when you weren't looking, I did a cannonball. I did a cannonball. Yeah, this summer I went swimming. This summer I might have drowned. But I held my breath and I kicked my feet and I moved my arms around. I moved my arms around. Thank you, Bob and David. The lake I grew up, uh, up by in central Illinois was long and wide and full of catfish. Back in the 1950s, winter and summer, that lake shaped our lives. None of us had formal swimming lessons. We learned by trials and some errors. How many water-friendly folks do we have here? I know it's not for everyone. Today, swimming is a metaphor only. <laughs> when I was eight or nine, a little, a little young to be towed on a surfboard behind a motorboat, I took a hard spill and inhaled a lot of water, and it rattled me so that I had an immediate diving phobia. I was scared of going into water head first. In my summer life, this fear was inconvenient. I couldn't imagine going through August, let alone the rest of my life, hampered by this, cut off essentially from the community connections that happened through water play in my world. So I got this idea that I'd retrain myself methodically to dive. My brother Kevin helped me carry Dad's big wooden stepladder out into the lake where the water was chest high on us, and we situated the ladder so its top half was above water. And then I started by standing on the lowest step, barely out of the mud. From there, I leaned forward and let go into the tiniest shallow dive, then came back up to the lowest step, took a breath, and went again and over and over, like that, till it felt okay. Next day, then, I went up to the next higher step, same routine. By the end of the week, I could stand on a step that was up out of the water and do a, a modest, unspectacular head-first dive. That done, life could resume. We hauled the ladder up the hill to the garage, and I went down the street to swim with the three blonde Vogel girls. This summer, I went swimming. This summer, I might have drowned, but I held my breath. I kicked my feet, and I moved my arms around. Last June, around General Assembly, I heard Lucy Kaplansky singing this Loudon Wainwright III swimming song. And the song stuck with me. 
even after I ejected the CD, you know how that goes, the song would accompany me. It's a whimsical song by a water lover, clearly. He gets sea salt in his cuts and chlorine in his eyes, and it's all worth it. On YouTube, you can watch Sophie the English Springer Spaniel dog paddle in a chlorine pool, catch water toys in time to Wainwright's song. <laughs> it's a scary song for a moment there at the beginning where he could drown, but he finds a way not only to cope, but eventually to shine. When I asked David Loth if he'd be interested in singing this song on August 29th, he said, why, sure, and then he courteously asked in his gentle yet probing David Loth way, and can you tell me why you are choosing this swimming song for Sunday worship? <laughs> First the yes, then the why. Well, I couldn't tell him much back in July, but now that I've had a few weeks to think about it, I would say to David and to Bob, who surely wondered too, for me, this song just could be a kind of liberal religious sacred text celebrating mystery, humanity, and faith. Mystery, humanity, and faith. When I was young, Elizabeth Andrews said, I wanted more than anything to be in relationship with the mystery. I wanted to dive under the ropes, heavy with seaweed. The river was unfathomable. I don't need to say much about the mystery part. What is more mysterious than water, the source of life? We all started as tadpoles. Water was our first home. It brings us comfort, as Mary Oliver said. Something had pestered me so much I thought my heart would break. I went down in the afternoon to the sea, which held me until I grew easy. The mystery of water can comfort a broken heart, or it can be the thing that causes the heart to break. In Pakistan, water has broken hearts and lives. So has lack of water. Too much or too little is a terror, a nightmare, an agony. That which gives us life can also slay us. We know this. This week, five years after, I've watched the videos of Katrina busting into New Orleans. There are times when swimming doesn't save us. That said, it's good and is human to try. What I love in Wainwright's swimming song is that the guy tries things. He might have drowned, but he didn't. He strove, he reached, he splashed, he kicked. Human resilience is the most awesome thing. The Christian Bible, I've noticed, is not big on swimming. <laughs> the Bible texts are pretty much silent on swimming, even with all that boating and fishing going on. Back in Illinois, where I grew up, our lake froze in December and became our winter, often snow-covered, playground. One winter day, I remember my older brother Kevin and I, we were maybe six and four, were inspired to take advantage of the frozen lake to act out a Bible story we'd heard in Sunday school. You may recall the story from Matthew chapter 14. The disciples are out in the boat, they see Jesus coming toward them, walking on the waves. Peter, the Alpha disciple, says, Wow, I want to do that. Let me join you. Pick me. And Jesus says, Come on then. Peter gets out of the boat, takes a couple steps, looks down, and probably remembers his name means rock. <laughs> and he panics and sinks. 
Jesus says, O thou of little faith, and stretches out a hand and helps Peter back into the boat. Well, out on the ice in Illinois, I was given the role of Peter. I sat bundled up on a wooden flexible flyer, sled our pretend boat. Twenty feet away, I would spot Jesus in snow pants, walking carefully my way, looking holier than me. And I would look amazed and shout, I want to walk on water too. Jesus would beckon me, come on. I would rise from the sled and step onto the ice, then pretend to panic. And since I couldn't sink beneath the waves on 10-inch ice, I'd just lie down and wave my arms and yell, save me, save me. He would take his time. <laughs> Eventually, little Jesus would arrive, take hold of one of my pitiful mittened hands, and lead me back to the sled. We tried this a couple times, swapping roles. We soon dropped it. The game was a dead end. As humans, we couldn't make it work in any season. In winter, Peter couldn't sink, and in summer, Jesus couldn't rise. Human kids that we were, with lungs and weight and a will to live, we needed a middle way, something between divinity and drowning. There ought to be a way to work with the water. Remember how Elizabeth Andrews put it when she was a kid immersed in the waters of the Hudson. If God was like the river, then I was in dynamic relationship with God. We touched one another, we moved one another, and something was born of that contact. Over the years, I came to prefer a Jesus who would spend less time selectively saving us from sinking and more time teaching us to swim. This is why I am not cut out to be a Calvinist. In Calvinism, an old religious stance still very much alive, God is very large and humanity is very small. Humanity is irresponsible and incapable of good except by God's extreme and merciful, merciful intervention. In Calvinism, God has the power and the plan. If we're among the fortunate, God chooses to save us from destruction. Our liberal forebears, both strands of our tradition, Unitarians and Universalists, gained muscle in the 1700s, partly in response to Calvinist fervor. Unitarians and Universalists said, humans aren't in complete bondage to sin. In our freedom, we are able to choose the good. We are able. As Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker reminds us, our tradition is above all humanistic. Our tradition trusts powers and forces that work in and through human beings, powers of growth, transformation, healing, discovery, creativity, revolution. Our great task and calling is to assist others in giving birth to the creative powers that are already in them. Human agency. That's what the song is about. Our capacity to learn to do and to act. This summer I did the backstroke and you know this, that, that's not all. I did the breaststroke and the butterfly and the old Australian crawl goes on to swan dives and jackknives, even a cannonball. I love how the swimmer in the song starts by thrashing around to avoid drowning but then goes on to these other, other 
accomplishments and sometimes just needs to fling himself in and make a thunderous splash. I love the progression from doing anything to simply survive, to gaining skill and strength and going on to exuberance and panache. Human resilience is an awesome thing. I'd love to be in New Orleans on September 10th at the Mahalia Jackson Theater to see the production called Swimming Upstream. I don't know if you've heard of that, Swimming Upstream. Um, it was created by 16 Katrina survivors in a process led by playwright and activist Eve Ensler, the vagina monologues woman. A spectrum of artists, matriarchs, soulful survivors will tell and sing their stories of coming through the hurricane. Swimming Upstream, says the press release, is a prayer, a blues ballad, a hallelujah, an affirmation, a nightmare, a battle cry, a eulogy, an incantation, an epic. End quote. It sounds like it's a gift to the world from those who've come through a storm swimming upstream. Of course, the storm we come through doesn't have to be a public one or a media magnet. The upstream swim can still be heroic. Elizabeth Andrews' sister, Marcy, the young sister she swam with in the Hudson River underwater, light refracted on their bodies. Years later, that sister, Marcy, became a single mother Early one Advent season, with the help of a loving midwife, Marcy gave birth to a son, Simon Emmanuel. Elizabeth, who lived far away, looked forward to being Simon's aunt. Elizabeth writes, The story of an incarnate God born over and over again in a manger and into our hearts paled in comparison with a life I could touch. Simon was a real baby, a soft-fleshed, smiling baby whose milky breath I was waiting to kiss at Christmas. Then, six days before Christmas, Simon Emmanuel fell asleep during his 3 a.m. feeding at my sister's breath, breast and never woke up. His tiny lungs stopped taking in air and no one could explain why. When Simon died, Julia, the midwife who helped deliver him, helped my sister, numb with shock, fill out reams of paperwork, she witnessed how coldly the police interrogated her. Have you had any alcohol in the last 24 hours? How is your relationship with the baby's father? And so on. Afterwards, Julia, the midwife, took Marcy home and bathed her. It comforts me, Elizabeth writes, to think of Marcy's tanned body in Julia's hands. The hot water poured and rubbed down her back. Her black, wet curls of hair patted dry. I like to think of those hands resonant with new life, touching my sister's skin, guiding her out of the water, reminding her to breathe. Then, in the same way Julia, the midwife, escorted Simon into the world, she attended to Marcy's new birth. There was nothing Marcy had desired more than to become a mother. Simon died, and without warning... Marcy was taken with the conviction equally strong to become a midwife. The care surrounding new birth and new death that had been lavished on her, she could administer to others. Grief and her sudden desire fused, and almost immediately she began school with more enthusiasm than she had ever shown. 
She listened for fetal heartbeats, gave lessons in nutrition, cried rivers of tears, and observed wide-eyed how her teachers calmed, coaxed, and caught babies from the womb. She is now present to others the way her midwife was present to her, ushering in life and nurturing motherhood. This is Simon's gift to Marcy, this passion for her work which makes her more alive with every childbirth. Marcy might have drowned in grief, but she didn't. And something was born of that thrashing upstream, a ministry. Of course, I don't have to read a memoir to know about this kind of human miracle greater than walking on water. I've seen it here often in my 13 years serving you. I have been taught by you and shown can happen when people can access their mysterious internal source and the help of others. I've watched you swim upstream in storms of huge change, of tough diagnoses, of relationship struggles, of caregiving challenges, job losses, partner losses, even the death of your children. And I've seen how others in this church circled around you fed you, followed you so you wouldn't get lost. I've seen you embark on the long, slow crawl, move through and beyond numbness and despair and forgetting to breathe, and into a rekindling of the spirit, a reintroduction to passion, and a luminous generosity of heart. This is the possibility in the faith community. This can be the gift the gift of witnessing and walking together, the gift of choosing to be vulnerable, and the gift of the good that's called out in response when we do that. We take turns. Sometimes we need the ocean, and sometimes we are the ocean. Remember that line from Reverend Justin Schroeder in a sermon last fall, I think it was, and the poem he shared by Philip Booth. Here's the poem, Father to Daughter. Lie back, daughter, let your head be tipped back in the cup of my hand gently, and I will hold you. Spread your arms wide, lie out on the stream and look high at the gulls. A dead man's float is face down. You will dive and swim soon enough where this tidewater ebbs to the sea, daughter. Believe me, when you tire on the long thrash to your island, lie up and survive. As you float now where I held you and let go, remember when fear cramps your heart what I told you. Lie gently and wide to the light year stars. Lie back and the sea will hold you. Alan Watts once said, Belief clings, faith lets go. I would add, faith lets go into something that holds. Buoyancy, that's the word. That's the other thing I would say to David Loth in response 
to his Wondering Why a Swimming Song. Because it's a song about buoyancy, which is a spiritual state. Possibly not unlike the groundlessness the Reverend Teresa Schwartz spoke of in this pulpit two weeks ago. I think that's what we're here to learn, we earth creatures half in and half out of the spirit world. Mermaids and mermen. That's what we're here to learn here at church in our intimate small groups, at worship as when we sing together, at home in the most challenging family situations, and when we're sitting on our solitary meditation cushions. Buoyancy. The trust that when we let go, we're letting go into something that holds. I think it's harder to learn than a swan dive. Maybe it's the achievement of a lifetime. In the New Orleans Swimming Upstream production, there's a story told by an 81-year-old woman. During and after Katrina, her neighbors wondered about, maybe objected to, the way she was always so danged happy. The woman says, like, I ain't got a right to my joy. The old woman says, I'm just not in the mood to be around folks who don't know that breathing is enough. Buoyancy. In the ancient Egyptian religion, there was a ritual called the weighing of the heart. The Egyptians believed that it was in the heart that all our moments and deeds were recorded, so it was the heart that was called for on Judgment Day. After a person died, the gods placed the person's heart on one side of a sacred scale, and on the other side of the scale they placed a feather. The feather of Mat, the goddess of truth and justice. If the heart balanced with the feather, the person was ushered into paradise. A light heart, light and free, was proof of a life well lived. It's something to ponder, maybe even something to practice. To close, let's be silent for a moment or two together. Take a moment to breathe. Sometimes breathing is enough. And feel our lives. And notice anything weighing on our hearts. And try letting it go into that river of love that leads to the ocean that will not, cannot let us go. Amen, and so be it. <laughs>